I think it's one of the great American successes in foreign and defense policy of the last uh, half century that Europe is now safe, free from Russian encroachment. Democracy can flourish. The United States has probably never had a more powerful adversary than China represents today. Welcome back to the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. This is your producer, Major Haziano, from the Department of Social Sciences at West Point. In our last episode, we talked with Lieutenant Colonel Seth Johnston about the continuing importance of NATO, both in Europe and beyond. This week, we continue our deep dive into NATO by speaking with Ambassador Nicholas Burns. Ambassador Burns is currently the Roy and Barbara Goodman family professor of the practice of diplomacy and international relations at the Harvard Kennedy School. He served as a career foreign service officer for 27 years, during which time he assumed a variety of prominent roles, such as being the U.S. Ambassador to Greece, the U.S. Ambassador to NATO, and the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. Captain Tony Palakarin was one of Ambassador Burns' students at the Harvard Kennedy School, and he comes back this episode to host the interview. The two talked about NATO's expansion over the years, both in the number of members as well as in its mission scope, how the U.S. can address democratic backsliding amongst some of NATO's member states, and what role, if any, that NATO has in engaging a rising China, both within Europe and in Asia. All right, so without further ado, here's the episode. Hello and welcome to the Soch Podcast. I am Captain Tony Palofferin, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Ambassador Nick Burns. Tony, uh, Captain, it's great to be with you. For those listening, uh, Captain Polkaren was a student in my class at the Harvard Kennedy School, a really good student, by the way, and I think you're all lucky. I'm very fortunate that he's an instructor now uh, at West Point. Sir, thank you for the kind words, and I am excited to have you on the podcast to talk through NATO and to talk through the future of NATO, especially for American national security. So that being said, let's jump right into it. So why is NATO important to us, and what is the significance of the alliance for the future of our national security? NATO is, is vital to American national security. Uh, NATO is, is the central organizing way in which we defend the United States and our European allies from the Russian Federation. It's the principal institutional vehicle through which we contain Russian power in Eastern Europe. Uh, NATO provides the conventional defense of Europe and the United States and Canada. It also provides the nuclear umbrella, especially for nearly all of our allies, with the exception of Britain and France, who are not nuclear weapons powers. That's provided by the United States, Britain, and France. It's also um, very much uh, at its foundation an alliance of democracies. We all believe in democracy. We believe in the rule of law. We believe in human freedom. And NATO was created, as I think the students know, the cadets know, uh, because uh, immediately after the Second World War, there was, um, there was a threat to Western Europe from Stalin's Soviet Union. We believed it was very important, President Truman, President Eisenhower, and all subsequent presidents, that um, the United States um, had to be forward deployed uh, after the Second World War to defend the United States itself. We could no longer sit back on our own continent as we had done before and after the First World War and ensure our security. That was a great lesson of the Second World War that General, McGarth, uh, General Eisenhower brought back. 
from his position as Supreme Allied Commander, organizing the defeat of, of Nazi Germany. So NATO was established in 1949. Uh, it was a small organization at the beginning. It's grown to be 30 countries. Um, in the immediate aftermath of the end of the Cold War, with the collapse of communism in the Warsaw Pact and in the Soviet Union, NATO expanded eastward. That's happened partly when I was ambassador to NATO in 2001 to 2005. We took in seven countries at that time, the three Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, and Bulgaria, and Slovakia and, uh, and Slovenia. NATO's expansion, along with that of the European Union, has allowed well more than 100 million European, East Europeans, formerly living in the communist world, to live free lives and to live in free societies. So it's, NATO protects the United States, it defends the United States, but it also advances the cause of freedom and democracy. With, and of course, those are our core values. Last thing I'd say, Captain Tony, if I may call you that, last thing I'd say is the United States, one of the great lessons that I learned in my career as a foreign service officer, and I think that most of our, almost all of our presidents have believed is that we're stronger in alliances than we are acting alone. And so our fundamental alliance in the transatlantic region is, is NATO. In East Asia, as we confront China, we have treaty alliances with Japan, South Korea, and Australia, defense agreements with the Philippines and Thailand, and a big security partnership, naval and air security partnership with, with India. Um, we're better off leading alliances than we are facing our adversaries alone. And I think the president is right that our primary adversaries these days are China and Russia. So, sir, you're spot on when you, when we talk about the expansion of NATO. So I, ju I just want to zone into that a little bit. So NATO, was, as you mentioned, was initially formed to check power of the Soviet Union and to ensure that Soviet Union does not encroach on the values that we hold near and dear, whether right. it be in Western Europe or whether in other parts of the world. But today, Soviet Union is no longer existent. And is NATO's expansion of mission in Afghanistan, as well as the membership, as you mentioned, 30 states now are part of the NATO alliance. Is it a good idea? When I was ambassador to NATO, um, I reported to the president through the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense. The Secretary of State was General Colin Powell. I remember Secretary Powell and I talking about, you know, whether we should expand NATO. And a lot, some people were saying, you know, you shouldn't, you should not expand NATO. There's no reason to. It'll antagonize the Russians. And um, I remember Secretary Powell saying, you know, when, when so many people are knocking on NATO's door to get in, it tells you that NATO has value, that NATO's the institution that can protect countries, frankly, some of the smaller countries in Eastern Europe against the Russian bear, against an assertive, aggressive Russia, which under Putin's leadership would be very happy to encroach on the liberties of the Estonians and the Latvians and the Lithuanians and the Poles. Those are all four members of NATO. So we felt at the time that if we failed to expand NATO in the 1990s and in, in the first two decades of this century, following the collapse of communism in the end of the Cold War, if we failed to do it, there'd be a vacuum of power in Central Europe. I mean, think of where that would be. It would be in the Czech Republic and Slovakia. It would be in Croatia and Slovenia and the Balkans. It would be in Romania and Bulgaria. It would be up in the Baltic Sea area. Uh, where the Baltic states and Poland are. And um, given Putin's track record, uh, I'm sure glad that we expanded NATO when we did, because if we hadn't, I think the Russians, not only would they have gone into Georgia and Ukraine and uh, 
Armenia the way they have, but they would have been in Estonia, Latvia, and some other countries, and we would be less secure. And I think it's also important for your students to remember at the end of the Cold War, we had a great American president, George H.W. Bush, Bush 41. I worked for him for two and a half years as one of his Soviet advisors in, in the White House at the, NS, at the National Security Council staff. His vision was, along with Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister of Britain, and Helmut Kohl, the Chancellor of Germany, and Francois Mitterrand, the President of France, their vision was Europe must be whole, free, and at peace. Europe had been none of those things for the 70, uh, 80 years prior, even hundreds of years prior uh, to the 1990s. And here we had an opportunity to create a united Europe, a democratic Europe, and a peaceful Europe. And we pulled it off. I think it's one of the great American successes in foreign and defense policy of the last uh, half century that Europe is now safe, free from Russian encroachment, democracy can flourish. It's a great victory for the United States that we did this. Democracy is a key aspect of NATO, and it's right. one of the key fundamental principles of NATO. But, you know, democratic backsliding is, within certain allies is a threat to the solidarity of the alliance. So what can NATO do to reinforce its core values of human rights, democracy, and individual liberties when they are at assault from within NATO, when certain members are moving away from sort of like democratic principles and democratic values. What can we do within NATO to ensure this does not threaten the alliance? It's a really tough question. Uh, when we take countries into NATO, and we've expanded NATO many times from the Turks and Greeks came in in 1952, Germany, West Germany came in in 1955, et cetera. We take them in because they're democracies, because they believe believe in the rule of law, they don't have territorial conflicts with their neighbors, etc. But, you know, NATO's an older alliance. And uh, here we are in 2021, Hungary, one of the NATO allies, is has become authoritarian under uh, Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary. Turkey, under President Erdogan, has become an authoritarian country. Poland is not as authoritarian as the other two, but it has vestiges of it. So here's the problem. NATO operates by consensus. When I was ambassador to NATO, it's, and it's true today, whenever we made a decision in the North Atlantic Council, that's the decision-making body of NATO, all the ambassadors sitting around the table, we do it by consensus, meaning everybody has to agree. So if the American ambassador of NATO to NATO tomorrow wanted to rebuke Hungary and penalize Hungary for their anti-democratic practices, all the Hungarians have to do is raise their hand and say, we disagree and that motion would not pass. So what can we do? We can isolate them. There's a shame culture in a lot of in international politics. You can kind of sideline them, not involve them in the most important discussions. Uh, we could also decide the NATO military committee, we're not gonna spend NATO defense funds to have conferences in Hungary or military exercises in Hungary. You could do all that just to show them you know, you want to go authoritarian, there's a cost. Uh, but you actually cannot expel them because that would take a consensus, 100% vote, and they would withhold their vote from it. What you have to hope for is that the Hungarians will come back to their senses, that at some point in the future, 
when Viktor Orban is no longer prime minister, the Hungarian people, maybe the younger generation, will lead their country back to true democracy, and then you welcome them back into the fold. We've had some experience historically. The Greeks had a military dictatorship between 1967 and 74. They, they remained members, but they were sidelined. The Turks had two military dictatorships in the 1980s. And so we've had some experience with this, but it's a really hard issue. We, as the leader of NATO, the United States, is there something we could do domestically to show that, hey, NATO is actually an upholder of values of human rights, freedom, and individual uh, liberties? I think so. It's the way that, it's the values we stand for. It's the policies that our government has. It's the way we conduct ourselves as military officers, as diplomats, in my case, prior when I was in the Foreign Service, that we uh, model these, that our behavior as a government and as individuals is to support democracy and to uphold freedom and to conduct ourselves in a professional way. Yes, I think, I think we can be that model. We're the largest and most powerful country in NATO. We're the leader of a NATO alliance in many ways. And so the United States, this puts a heavy responsibility on all of us who serve at NATO, civilian and military, uh, to, to uphold the standards. I mean, who was our, the first Supreme Allied commander of NATO back in 1949 was General Eisenhower. General Eisenhower, West Point graduate, you know, one of the great, one of the great military officers of all of American history, also a very great president. We have a long line of tradition uh, of values uh, and of tradition that we need to uphold. At West Point, I know that that's a very powerful factor in the formation of, of an army officer. And the same is true of the formation of foreign service officers. And so I think that's part of it, Tony. Part of it is our government leaning on these authoritarian countries like Hungary and pressuring them and letting them know we're unhappy and it's not going to be business as usual. In our own bilateral relationship, there are no holds barred. We can tell the Hungarians we're not going to give you any military support. We're not going to sell weapons to you. We're not going to have your cadets come to West Point. We're not going to, although I, I think I wouldn't recommend that. I'll tell you why. But you can you can take it, you can take measures on a bilateral basis, U.S. to Hungary, that penalizes them. I actually would want to continue, want to have young Hungarians come and study at our universities, at our military academies, at Harvard, where I teach, because you want that younger generation to understand and embrace democracy, and you want them to be friends of the United States. So I think that's still something we should do. You know, that that is a, definitely a great point, given the fact that you want to export our model of democracy, and the only way you can export it is bringing them in and showing them, hey, this is how we do it here. See this yeah. freedom. Right? Exactly right. So I, I agree with you. But there's now another country that's in the world that is sort of standing up to these democratic principles, this democratic value, and that is China. And as a global power, they definitely don't share these same democratic values as we do or as NATO does. So should NATO as an alliance and as an organization be concerned about Chinese incursions or Chinese investments in Europe? the EU-China trade deal, or and Chinese espionage, cyberspace espionage. So should these concern NATO specifically? Yes, I believe they should. Uh, China is the most powerful adversary that the United States has in the world today. For the cadets who are studying at West Point now, you know, you're going to have to understand the history of that country, the culture. Uh, many of you will become Mandarin speakers. You're going to have to square off against them, hopefully hopefully not in combat, but in terms of deterring Chinese power. 
um, in, in the Indo-Pacific, certainly, but also elsewhere in the world. And that's going to be a heavy responsibility. I would say, Tony, that the United States has probably never had a more powerful adversary than China represents today. It's, um, it's a powerful economy, obviously. It's the leading uh, manufacturing and export country in the world. It is a powerful country technologically. So they're going to compete with us for the next generation of military uh, technology based on AI and quantum sciences and biotechnology. It's, they have a powerful military in the development of their ballistic missiles that are carrier killers. You know, they're really focused on, on going after our carrier battle groups in the uh, South and East China Sea, in the Indian Ocean. Uh, they have a powerful submarine force. Uh, they are a nuclear weapons power. So um, I think for the, for the generation of military officers studying with you right now at West Point, or the naval officers studying at Annapolis, this is going to be the great adversary, the great competitor first. A second, um, obviously, we're going to have to confront them first in the Indo-Pacific. And that's why our allies there, Japan, Australia, South Korea, are so important to us. Where the Quad, uh, this is the US, India, uh, Australia, and, and Japan working together, and President Biden, in the week that we're taping this podcast, is going to be attending his first Quad meeting with Prime Minister Suga of Japan and Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India and Prime Minister Scott Morrison of Australia. It's a powerful quartet of democracies. We don't want to fight China, but we want to compete militarily. We don't want to be number two militarily. So that's very important. So your question is a challenging one. Should we care if China, if a Chinese state company is managing the largest port of the Mediterranean Sea, the port of Piraeus in Greece? Yes, we should care. Should we care that the Chinese are actively trying to divide many of the East European countries, the Balkan countries from the EU and NATO? Yes, we should care. Should we care that the Chinese are developing military technologies that they could easily uh, use uh, if the Chinese fleet was in the Eastern Med, uh, right? Or in the Suez Canal area or in the Indian Ocean, uh, offensive weapons that could deter American military forces in South Asia or the Middle East? Yes, we should care. So we're gonna have to, um, NATO is not going to transport thousands of soldiers from Europe to the Indo-Pacific because we have our alliance system in place already. But NATO is going to have to, and the European Union, uh, are going to have to work very hard to minimize China's negative influence in Europe itself. Europe's still important to the United States. It's the largest trade partner of the United States. It's the largest investor into the American economy and the largest collection of American treaty allies, military allies, anywhere in the world, Canada and the 28 European allies. So for all those reasons, yes, China's gonna be important. And of course, we're gonna to have to contain Russian military power in Eastern Europe, uh, in Southern Europe. So uh, NATO's very real. It has a, a concrete mission. It's not yesterday's story, it's tomorrow's story. What objectives do you envision for NATO, specifically in the Indo-Pacific theater. Um, and do you think the rest of the uh, European Union members or NATO ally members would join in or would have that universal uh, vision of this Chinese threat in the Indo-Pacific? Right. I don't think that all 30 NATO countries would deploy together, Luxembourg and some of the smaller countries, Iceland, which doesn't really have a military, has a police force. In any kind of eventuality, 
if we were at war or if we had to if we have to deploy for defensive reasons uh, to the Indo-Pacific. But some of the allies that are charter members of NATO's NATO would the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is the strongest military in NATO next to the United States. They can deploy. They have C-17s. They have uh, two aircraft carriers. Uh, they have a great naval and maritime tradition. So the United Kingdom right now is deploying military vessels to the South and East China Sea on freedom of navigation exercises to demonstrate uh, our defense of international maritime law. Uh, Germany and France are two other countries that have the military capacity to deploy globally, not just in Europe. And so, yes, the, the lessons we learn at NATO, the habits of cooperation, the synergy that comes from our militaries to military relationship with these countries, it pays off in Europe, certainly, but it also can pay off in the Indo-Pacific theater. No question about it. But I would say, I'll just repeat myself, but it's an important point. You know, Japan is our most important ally in the Indo-Pacific for obvious reasons, given um, given our position on Okinawa, given our naval and bases, given our air bases, uh, given our long defense treaty. Australia, pound for pound, I mean, the, some of the young cadets studying at West Point now, will they'll work with the Australians, special forces, for instance, uh, pound for pound, what a great ally, really capable, very effective military officers, effective war fighters, effective intelligence people. We need the Australians. And South Korea, Obviously, we got to deal with Kim Jong-un, prevent North Korea from ever using its nuclear weapons. And the American army, the army, is the backbone of our position on the Korean Peninsula. So uh, a lot of the people studying at West Point today, I mean, your future could be in multiple regions of the world. It could be in Europe. It could be in the Middle East. It could be very probably could be in the Indo-Pacific, right? And so um, our military officers, when I was a young guy studying a civilian at Boston College, I mean, my whole orientation was towards Europe because it was the Soviet threat. And and my contemporaries were studying at West Point in the 1970s. They're thinking Soviet Union. The young people now, young women and young men at West Point need to be thinking globally that they could be deployed anywhere in the world. They need to be smart about the politics and the history, as well as the strategic issues of China, uh, as well as Russia. Uh, as well as the terrorists that we're still fighting in, in groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So when we talk about strategic issues, the last one question I have for you is, let's talk about climate change. And that is something that has continuously come up in President Biden's uh, draft national security strategy. I think it's come up 35 times when I did the control F and tried to find how many times is climate change yeah. mentioned it. It keeps popping up. So climate change is it's, it's an issue not just here in the United States, not just here in the transatlantic region, but it is a real issue even in the Indo-Pacific region. If you look at Bangladesh or Myanmar, or all these countries are affected by climate change. What do you think NATO ought to do when it comes to mitigating the effects of climate change specifically? How, how do we lead um, on the issue of climate change, especially within NATO? Well, our governments need to lead. And, and, you know, because we're all democracies, we're like-minded, we live with each other. You know, when you're deployed, when you're assigned to NATO, as I was, it's an interesting mission. It's a joint State Department, Defense Department mission. I was obviously a State Department officer as ambassador, but the majority of the people working uh, for me and with me were uh, military officers, many from the Army, and, and OSD, Department of Defense civilians. And so um, it's a great group of people 
we're sitting there every day working with all the European governments. So obviously NATO's a point of contact for us to be to be uh, exhorting each other across the Atlantic to agree that we should be in the Paris Climate Change Agreement. We should be working to lower our carbon emissions. We should be working on civilian and military technologies that um, will get us hopefully by 2050 to net zero emissions so that we can uh, save the planet and we can avoid the kind of catastrophic change in the climate that would produce national security risks. So I think from the military point of view, I mean, I mean, your students appreciate this. Scarcity of water through climate change can cause wars, right? And people who uh, live in savannah lands that become deserts because of climate change, those people are going to move. They're going to move en masse, hundreds of thousands or millions of them into the southern states of the United States, into Texas and Arizona, New Mexico and California, our land border with Mexico. Or they're going to move... The population of sub-Saharan Africa will double in the next 40 years. The population of Nigeria will double. If, if climate change makes many of those countries uh, agricultural land infertile, uh, then they're going to move. They're going to move north. They're going to move towards Europe. We know from the movement of people that can cause conflict. What we want to do in the United States is uh, diminish the probability of conflicts. Climate change could create them. I think that's one reason why the military needs to focus on this as well as being good citizens of the United States, we want our country to succeed. And I was impressed that General Alston, Secretary Alston has been talking about climate change as a national security uh, issue, as has President Biden. That is a critical issue that it will also define the future for our cadets and our officers. Like you said, we have to be not just focused on Europe, but we have to be focused on global issues. And climate change is very well could be one of those issues that our cadets would have to deal with. Well, Ambassador Burns, thank you so much. Uh, I just wanted to say, uh, well, first of all, I wanted to say how good it is to see you because you were such a fine student at Harvard. Now to see you succeed at West Point, it makes me proud as your former professor. Thank uh, you, sir. Secondly, I just wanted to say to the men and women, uh, the cadets uh, and to the faculty, how much uh, I admire the Army and West Point. Um, when I was newly married, my wife Libby was, in, uh, was studying architectural history, and she was given a job by the Department of Interior, go up to West Point and conduct an architectural history of West Point itself. So she and a couple of other people were up there for, I think, six weeks in the summer of 1981, and they surveyed every single building at the point, at West Point. And they, they advised the Department of Defense and the, and the Department of the Army on which buildings needed to be saved because they were national historic treasures, which buildings you could tear down. And um, I visited several times and I visited over the, over the course of my career, often West Point. And I just have the greatest respect for the tradition and mission of the Army and of the cadets. And, and, and Tony, let me leave you with a very short story. Why is NATO important, you asked me? I found out the answer to that question on 9-11. I arrived 12 days before 9-11 as a very new American ambassador in Brussels at NATO headquarters. And uh, we were six hours ahead of Washington time-wise. So in the middle of the afternoon of September 11th, 2001, when we were hit really hard and 3,000 people died in New York City, in Washington, D.C., and in, in that field in Pennsylvania where Flight 93 crashed, uh, I, uh, my staff and I gathered around my office and we said, we got to help. We called the Pentagon. 
couldn't get any on the line, maybe the line, the Pentagon had been attacked. A plane had flown into the Pentagon, killed lots of people, and people had evacuated. Called the State Department, that was evacuated. Called the White House, well, the White House was evacuated. And so um, my diplomatic and military staff said, we, we got to be prepared to defend here in Europe. We didn't know where the next attack was coming, but my phone started to ring. Canadian ambassador, David Wright, the French ambassador, Benoit Dabouville, the German ambassador, Gephardt von Molke. We want to help you. We want to come to your defense. We want to be with you. If this was Al-Qaeda, we want to fight Al-Qaeda with you. And NATO had never invoked Article 5 of the NATO treaty. An attack on one of us shall be considered an attack on all of us. It was the linchpin of NATO. But we had never invoked it because generations of army officers had deployed to Germany and defended Germany and Western Europe against the Soviet attack. And we were so strong up on the North German plain so that, that the Soviets never dared attack us. The great irony, a tragic irony, is when the attack came, it came against the United States, not against Western Europe and Canada. And I'll tell you something, by that evening, we met in an emergency session and I was asked to speak to the NATO ambassadors. And I said, you know, this might be the bloodiest day in American history since September 1862, the Battle of Antietam, 23,000 American casualties on both sides. We've lost a lot of people. We need your help. If you can invoke Article 5, you would help to defend us. By the next morning, every single government had, government, had permission from their presidents and kings and prime ministers to defend the United States. And so I felt like I needed adult supervision here. I'm out there as ambassador to NATO. I thought I need the commander in chief's personal authorization to invoke Article 5 because it's basically a declaration of war. And I called back. Uh, it was 4 a.m. Washington time, 10 a.m. Brussels time. I called my friend and mentor, Condoleezza Rice, who was the national security advisor. I said, Condi, the allies want to invoke Article 5. She said, go for it. I said, thank you, Condi but I really think I need the president's personal permission. She said, go for it. I said, well, Condi, I think I need the president's. And she cut me off and she said, Nick, he's had a really bad day. It's four in the morning. He's getting some sleep. She was in the situation room. She said, go for it. I said, Condi, I'll take that as my presidential instruction. We'll vote for Article 5 and we'll mobilize the allies to help whatever we decide to do, which was to go into Afghanistan. She said, um, she said, right, go for it. She said, one more thing. I said, what's that? She said, it's good to have friends in the world. And I've never forgotten that. Despite our huge power, and we're the most powerful country in the world, we never want to be number two, we need friends. You don't want to be living on an island. You don't want to be alone in battle. You don't want to be alone fighting Saddam Hussein or Al-Qaeda or ISIS, or deterring China or Russia. That was a great lesson for me. One of the biggest lessons, maybe the most important lesson I learned in my career. We're better off in alliances and coalitions. We mainly lead them, but we're stronger because of them. I'll tell you the moral of that story. Every single NATO ally went into Afghanistan with us. They together lost more than a thousand soldiers in combat and several thousand wounded. And right now, they're all still there great majority of them. And the European troops now outnumber the United States troops, American troops in Afghanistan itself. That was a good bet to invoke Article 5 and to ask for help. 
because that's what allies do when they're in trouble. And and I just wanted to say that um, I uh, respect so much all the army officers and all the military officers and enlisted personnel who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. We lost too many people. I, I visited um, Ramstein. I visited Lanchdool um, Military Hospital when I was ambassador to NATO with um, with General Martin, who was commander of uh, American Air Forces in Europe, and we. Um, talked to a lot of the young GIs who'd been wounded in both Iraq and Afghanistan. It's a sobering thing. And it makes me respect the military so much and respect the, the life and career that your cadets have chosen, a life of service and sacrifice and willing to put yourself in harm's way. And the country needs you and the country depends on you. And we're very grateful. And I want to tell that 9-11 story because that really is about, it's about the military. It's about the military going into harm's way. So thank you to anybody listening to this at West Point. And thank you, Captain, for your service in the United States uh, Army. Thank you, Professor Burns, for the support. You know, that story, um, you said this story in class. Uh, I think it was the first day of class. And there was a picture of you where you're sitting on the couch and you were surrounded by um, your other ambassadors, fellow ambassadors right. uh, from other NATO countries. And that picture st is still stuck in my head. And then this story. So whenever I, you know, I think about you or I think about you know the class. The first thing that pops into my mind is that story and how powerful that 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 story was. Yeah. Um, you know, for someone who has not been in the room, who doesn't see how decisions are made, that story is very powerful and to show how we need to have friends um, for because because the future we don't know what the future is going to hold for us. Uh, there might be opportunities, but there might be dangers as well. And having these friends. And allies is the most critical part for us as the United States and for our military. So, Professor Burns, thank you so much for taking this time to Pleasure. talk to us. And you are always welcome to come to West Point. Thank you, Captain. And it would be an honor to be back at West Point and to see you and to see the cadets. And I wish all of you the best uh, during these difficult times and your families. And uh, thanks very much for the opportunity to be with you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Soch Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever streaming service you enjoy using. We would also appreciate you leaving a five-star review and sharing our episodes with your friends. If you have any comments, suggestions, or critiques, please feel free to reach out to us by email at sochresearchlab at westpoint.edu. That's S-O-S-H, research lab at westpoint.edu. We're always excited to hear from our listeners, cadets, social alumni, and friends of the department. Thank you to Ambassador Burns for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk to us, and to Captain Palakarin for leading the interview. Unless we forget, special thanks to the West Point Band for allowing us to use their music. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, and should not be seen as reflective of the official positions of the United States Military Academy, the U.S. Army, the Department of Defense, or any government entity. This is Majoriano, signing off. Until next time. <laughs>